Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You're listening to Alternative Talk AM 1150. The Dog Show is brought to you in part by The Natural Pet Pantry, raw and cooked food for your dog and cat. You can find them online at naturalpetpantry.com. Jet City Animal Clinic here in Seattle. Dr. Anderson and her team do a wonderful job taking care of local pets. JetCityAnimalClinic.com and, of course, Pure Air Odor Eliminator for getting any sort of organic odor out of anything that you can put water on. Pure Air, and, of course, air is spelled A-Y-R-E, ThePureAirStore.com. So we're approaching our 350th episode. Eric, can you believe that? I can't. (laughs) Believe it. So um, I think this is episode number 343, if memory serves. And I'm so excited to welcome back one of my all-time favorites. Dr. Michael Fox is with us again today on the phone from Minnesota. Dr. Fox, welcome back to The Dog Show. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be back, and congratulations on your long run. Thank you. Now the May you run forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the uh, Now, our first interview was episode number 37, uh, back in November of 2009, and we talked about your book, Not Fit for a Dog, The Truth <clears throat> About Manufactured Dog and Cat Food, and uh, very, very informative, and uh, we've had the the pleasure and privilege of having Dr. Fox back on the show a few times since then as well. I know uh, talking about uh, fleas once and talking about uh, the Sparks Conference uh, one year, and back today to talk about a couple of different topics, uh, kind of continuing the conversation about this topic of nutrigenomics. Um, I did a show a few months ago with Dr. Gene Dodds, and uh, Dr. Fox has some information to add to that conversation. And then also talking about your extensive work with uh, shelters and animals in shelters. I know you were the vice president of the Humane Society of the United States and Humane Society International. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So and, uh, and my wife, Deanna Krantz, I helped her, and she ran an incredible animal shelter and full veterinary service uh, in uh, a remote part of India for several years, where we had dogs, ponies, all kinds of creatures. Mm. The India Project for Animals, right? Yes. Cool. So um, let's start on the topic of nutrition and nutrigenomics, and I found this to be extremely interesting, talking about uh, genetics, and, you know, we have sort of our set of genes that we're born with that don't change. However, there is uh, something called the epigenome, which I've recently learned about, that surrounds the DNA and initiates chemical reactions with the cells that control the gene expression. So we have genes, but which genes are expressed and when is actually something that we can influence. And in this conversation, we're talking about the impact of nutrition as one of those factors. So it's interesting. um, Now, you had mentioned 
aflatoxins and glyphosate? Yes. And sort of um, as it pertains to this conversation of nutrigenomics and how what we eat actually influences how our genes are expressed, which is pretty, imp- I mean, pretty fundamental to health, right? It's one of the main uh, bridges to maintaining this kind of balance between uh, what the genes are doing uh, for the body and the outside environment. And we have a genome, which is a whole collection of genes that don't generally work singly, but they interact with each other, and they can switch each other on and off and do all kinds of things. Some switch on during early development, and then they switch off. Uh, and yet, this is part of the mystery that geneticists don't fully understand now, is how does this collection of genes, the genome, uh, maintain, well, first of all, build the body with different organs, mm-hmm. and then maintain the function. And we are discovering now that environmental influences uh, affect uh, which assemblies of genes are going to be expressed and uh, can affect development, immune system, and all kinds of processes. And uh, and whether, you know, essentially whether disease is present or not, whether, you know... Exactly. Well, there are inherited diseases that are... Uh, specific genetic defects, but with the epigenetic programming that can occur, for example, during pregnancy, uh, the developing fetus uh, can be affected, and one of the early epigenetic phenomena that I studied was uh, so-called handling or gentling of pregnant animals, rodents especially, and their offspring Uh, were easier to handle Mm. and they learned better in situations that they'd never been in before because they could adapt to stress better. And ultimately I I applied that kind of principle uh, with with, uh, postnatal handling to develop the super dog project for the army. Now Mm. that's looking at the emotional, adrenal, neuroendocrine side of things. Mm. The other side is looking at nutrition and health. And it was amazing uh, that one of the simplest but really classic studies was done at my Royal Veterinary College in London, my alma mater, by some uh, biological scientists who found that uh, pregnant rats who were fed essentially a diabetogenic diet uh, became obese, developed diabetes. When their offspring were born, their offspring preferred to eat a diabetogenic diet than a regular diet. All their food choices and everything else have been changed. And they did control studies, you know, with pregnant mothers that were not given that kind of diet to begin with, and then normal baby rats were given the choice between the, the nasty food and the regular food, and some of them chose the nasty food, but they were less prone to diabetes and obesity, so complicated things are going on here mm. in this epigenome, which I like to call the genosphere. It's the way in which the whole internal processes of any living organism have dialogue with the outside environment. And it could be at the physical level 
of nutrients or the emotional level of the mother's stress or lack of stress. Yeah. I think it's such an interesting uh, and, uh, you know, mind-blowing level of intelligence. It is. You're talking about self-organizing inherent intelligence within within the genome and uh, you know it, it does lead one to move towards uh, a more spiritual perception of biology because of this fundamental mystery yeah uh, and phenomenon of intelligent self-organization and intelligent responsiveness to the external environment it's it is really awesome. Yeah. But it, when things go off the rails, yeah. we need to think holistically this way and not simply treat the symptoms of dis-ease by giving drugs and getting paranoid and thinking, well, maybe there might be terrible disease, so we must give uh, a carpet bombing uh, with vaccinations. I'm not against judicious use of vaccinations, but the overuse is a horrible legacy of modern veterinary and human medicine. Yeah. It's, um, makes me, I, th- I mean, I think it is, it, it really, it get, you get to a level, I mean, when you start talking about genetics, it's sort of, you know, you get to a point and then I think our, uh, certainly at least our general human brains, it's like, oh, okay, I'm getting to the edge of what I can actually comprehend. Yeah, and but we, we've got a, we've got a whip too now. You know, we've got climate change. We've totally, totally buggered the planet, and we've become an infestation. We have to either evolve or perish. And part of that evolution means thinking in an integrative, holistic way. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm so excited to be, you know, one of the uh, older members of the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association. And I'm seeing more and more of my colleagues looking for uh, safer, uh, more biologically appropriate, I hate the word natural, but more biologically yeah. appropriate ways of treating animals when they become diseased and in, preventi- and, and in preventing disease too. And mm-hmm. this is why I applaud it. And, you know, I've known also Gene Dodds, the veterinarian, for oh, many years when we were back-to-back defending the rights of laboratory animals to humane treatment and all of that. And uh, he has come out with a beautiful book, uh, which brings these two sides of the coin of the same currency together, nutrition and genetics. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to get into more conversation about that relationship. We're talking with Dr. Michael Fox, and you can find him online. His website is drfoxvet.net. And you're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Prayed for the moon to give him light For it many a mile to go that night Before he'd reach the town Oh, town, oh, town, oh He'd many a mile to go that night Before he'd reach the town The Natural Pet Pantry is Seattle's original source for wholesome dog and cat meals, offering eight different protein options, 
to accommodate your pet's dietary needs. Made locally using all U.S. sourced ingredients, their freshly ground stews, raw or cooked, can be purchased from their two stores in Burien and Kirkland, most independent pet supply stores, or delivered right to your door. Go to naturalpetpantry.com for more information. I'm Julie Forbes, and my first choice for my pet's food is the Natural Pet Pantry. It's the educated choice. Wish your dog didn't hate going to the vet? Wish you were welcomed by a team who cared? Jet City Animal Clinic is an enjoyable respite from the same old thing. Dr. Anderson and her team have created a full-service facility that combines veterinary expertise with a comfortable style. Jet City Animal Clinic is located in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood on 12th Avenue across from Seattle U. Bring your crazy questions, odd ideas, and alternative thinking. Jet City Animal Clinic will work with you to keep your furry family members healthy and happy. Traditionally educated with an open mind, call us at 206-329-0253 or email info at jetcityanimalclinic.com to make an appointment. Jet City Animal Clinic, a unique approach to the health care of your urban pet, a local family practice, jetcityanimalclinic.com. Hey, dog show fans, does something stink in your home or car? Pure Air is a powerful odor eliminator that is the only natural food-grade product in its category. It works on bedding, kennels, litter boxes, urine, vomit, poop, even skunk spray. You know, all the fun smells our pets bring into our home. It's so non-toxic that you can literally eat it, a requirement for our home and our dogs. Spray pure air on anything you can put water on and let your nose watch the odor disappear. Ask for pure air in stores that specialize in natural, non-toxic products for home. Or visit dogradioshow.com for a link to their website. I'm Julie Forbes, your host of The Dog Show. Pure air is the only odor eliminator you'll find in my home. You'll love it. News, traffic, and weather? Now you can get your information fixed weekdays on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. Then the fox and his wife, without any strife, cut up the goose with fork and knife. They never had such a supper in their life, and the little one is chewed on the bones, oh, bones, oh, bones, oh. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, and we're back talking with Dr. Michael Fox, talking about the relationship between, well, our environment, specifically nutrition and what we eat and what we feed our pets, and how this impacts our genetic expression and, um... It is, you know, we were talking about just sort of how fascinating it is to think about the this level of intelligence that our bodies possess and how we respond to and really sort of control our fate in a way. And it makes me think about, you know, generations, you know, if we're thinking about this over the, you know, a long period of time and looking at the direction of our species and how this is all impacting this because we're talking about, you know, influencing genetic expression, influencing disease. And basically, if our choices are conscious, healthy, if we, as best we can in this world, uh, try to protect our bodies from toxins, both in food and otherwise... Um, and our pets as well, how that influences basically the our fate or our you know the direction 
And then, you know, you're talking about how this is passed on sort of generationally. And so how is this impacting our evolution? Uh, you know, the, the choices that we make, the food that we eat, how we grow our food, you know, the genetic engineering, the pesticides, all of that kind of stuff. And that it's not just impacting our health in the moment, but it's impacting sort of the direction that we're evolving as a species. And, and uh, you know, the, the idea of evolution towards increasing perfection and so on is, is a myth. Uh, it's a perversion of Darwinism created by the Industrial Revolutionists of Europe. Evolution really means uh, increments of adaptation to the current situation to mm. maintain health and balance. Yeah. And we are essentially devolving culturally and spiritually uh, with an industrialized agriculture that essentially poisons the land, and we call it food, and poisons our drinking water in the process. And, uh, you know, otherwise, how do we count for the virtual epidemics of cancer in humans? Many uh, specific types we also see in our dogs, like uh, lymphatic cancers and lymphoma and so on. Mm -hmm. And there was a very elegant study just, just published recently showing that uh, dogs uh, running on uh, herbicide-treated lawns uh, actually show traces of those herbicides in their urine a few days later. Mm. They are, their health issues are rather like the canaries down the mine shaft, mm. uh, sharing the same environment as us, uh, sharing the same food and food byproducts that go into most pet foods, if you don't prepare your own organically certified with basic ingredients. Uh, and, you know, one of the big contaminants uh, that gets into pet food is recalls all the time, other, from, other than salmonella and E. coli, from, which comes from farm animal manure, uh, are the aflatoxins. And these are cancer-causing uh, kind of mold that grows on corn. Mm -hmm. And the corn is processed, and uh, it unfortunately often gets into uh, cat and dog food. And the government is, and state health authorities are running tests and recalls all the time. This is, this is a real nasty, but at least they have a handle on it. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, I talk with my clients in my work with behavior and training here in Seattle um, a lot about food and the impact of, you know, it's one of the most important factors to health in general, uh, but how it can impact, you know, I think sort of obviously, except we don't really think about this as a society, about how it can impact how we feel. It and, impacts feeling. Yeah. It impacts cognitive processing mm -hmm. and, and learning abilities, and uh, it also impacts the immune system. Now, on the learning abilities, you know, we've, we're befuddled now. We we'll not only have information overload, but our brains uh, are suffering from the assault of various chemicals that get through the blood-brain barrier, uh, coupled by, uh, you know, epidemic deficiencies of essential uh, nutrients, such as uh, the omega-3 fatty acids mm -hmm. uh, that we have increasing dementia. Uh, we see a lot of that in cats and uh, uh actual Alzheimer's-type lesions in cats, too, and lots of old dogs, you know, becoming cognitively impaired, and it's not just because they're getting cataracts or going deaf. 
their brains are not functioning very well. Mm. And they found recently that making most of their the fat in their diet uh, derived from coconut oil, their cognitive processes actually improve. Mm. Now we're discovering now, we're calling these nutraceuticals, you know, like pharmaceuticals. These are nutrients that have a specific beneficial effect for some physiological or physical problem. And this really is, is a major step forward. And in the old days, the doctors and the vets would say, just eat, you know, diversity of foods and all will be well. You'll adapt to it. But in that process of adapting to, you know, the kind of horrendous fast food uh, and coupled with, well, washed down with high fructose sodas yeah. for humans and the high starch content and other nutrient deficiencies and imbalances in dog and cat foods, we have an epidemic of obesity yeah. in the human and canine and feline populations. Now, the old nutritionists would say, well, we've got to put them on diet. Uh, more fiber, lower calories, and they've been fishing around with prescription diets and making millions and billions yeah. until, bingo, they've discovered that what you eat uh, affects your microbiome, which <laughs> is the garden of the guts, mm -hmm. that different populations of bacteria start to flourish when you eat a lot of starches that help you digest the starch but in the process you start putting on more weight mm. so when you start changing the intestinal flora with nutrition that intestinal flora affects your uh, nutrient uptake and how your nutrients are being utilized and can make you feel more depressed more lethargic the dog wants to sleep all day after he's eaten and so does the old man and so on and so forth yeah so we are discovering now that more biologically appropriate diets, and that's the flag. Humans are omnivores, so, you know, eat sensibly, lots of fruits and vegetables, medium amount of grain, very little meat. You hardly need meat and fish and all that other stuff. Most of it's so contaminated anyway. Yeah. Better to stick to nuts. <laughs> and for our dogs and cats, again, biologically appropriate diets. Yeah. Uh, but, but as Gene Dodds and others have shown, there are genetic differences with the dogs, not just related to how their mothers were fed and how they were, what they were weaned onto as puppies, but because of specific genetic idiosyncrasies related to that breed. So Wheaton Terriers, for example, cute that they have that name, they are totally wheat intolerant. They yeah. shouldn't have any wheat in their diet. And dogs really shouldn't, in general, really have wheat in their diet. I mean, would you agree with that? No, I would never say shouldn't. Cats, uh, d dogs are very uh, adaptive omnivores up to a point. Um, so it's only if they areas, have an intolerance Virtually to it. all they had to eat was leftovers like that, uh, plenty of rice, uh, potatoes, especially across Europe after they got them from South and Central America. And they adapted, and they were working. And these basic foods and leftovers from the human community uh, were grown on pretty rich soils. They were not nutri nutriently impoverished or loaded with chemicals like they are today. 
Right. So we're talking about a rather different scenario. So traditional paleolithic diets for people and scavenger diets for dogs. Forget it. <laughs> yeah. Generally, though, I mean, so it's not necessarily... I know that dogs have ad- adapted, so to speak, to tolerate more starch. They're not strict carnivores like cats, but the sort of if they're going to eat grain, assuming they don't have a specific intolerance or sensitivity or allergy. Um, a very small amount is fine, I believe, because it does provide energy. Yeah. It, it provides a source of prebiotics. And there are, there's quite a lot of protein there, too. Yeah. And they're, they're pretty good amino acid source to complement um, other amino acids. But for cats, no. Yeah. No grains, no soy. And then there's also... It's, it's interesting, I was watching the TV last night that uh, Purina, bless their cotton socks, they're advertising this new food with a, an organically looking brown bag called Beyond. Yes. And no grains, no soy, no meat byproducts. Well, it's about bloody time, isn't it? But why are they pulling that out from the rest of the pack? <laughs> yeah. But, but I, th- that's what I call evolution. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the community is uh, sort of getting a, you know, a little more wise, I think, the general yes, public. but let's take that around, that Purina is saying, that would say, and I did consult with them years ago, they would say now, well, we are simply responding, not just to Dr. Michael Fox's newspaper columns, but to public demand. Yeah. And I would say to hell with public demand. What about sound science? Yeah and coming out with biologically appropriate diets? Or what about corporate ethics? Yeah. You are a subsidiary of a highly toxic agribusiness. And let's, get, let, let's start cleaning up the act. End of story. Yeah. And I- now that um, the scientist that communicated with me, he's a research scientist, has found uh, the herbicide glyphosate in uh, some dog and cat foods, actually in the cat foods, and glyphosate is a probable carcinogen, and it's an herbicide. Now, imagine having an herbicide in your food. What's it going to do to the garden of the guts, Mm. to the microbiome? Uh, You start destroying some of the good bacteria there. You're going to have some nasty ones flaring up, and an animal who's bloating and sick, and uh, you can have what's called a leaky gut syndrome developing, where the guts become more permeable to substances that can cause allergies and other health problems, even triggering autoimmune diseases. It's very scary. Yeah. I always, uh, I mean, I have a bit of an attitude with big, uh, big name pet foods in general. You should hear my house when one of the ads comes on the television and I start, you know, firing off about it. Um, but my thing with that is like, oh, well, you've, you know, oh, well, we value the blah, 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 and, you know, grain free and, you know, whatever. And it's like, well, how about the other 50 formulas that you make that have meat byproducts and corn and, you know, all of these other horrendous, it's like you, uh, they sort of market themselves as this, and, and not just Purina, I mean, there's a, t- there's a whole group of them. Yes, 
And it's like, well, what about the other 50 formulas that you make that have byproducts in them? Like, what about well, those? Remember, we should call Purina Nestle's now because they were bought up. And Purina St. Louis Nestle's now has a scientist designing the next generation of pet foods for, for the next generation of consumers who, want, who are foodies, uh, that the dog food is going to be designed to look even more appetizing to a human. Yeah. And I had a call the other day from CNN or some reporter, she must have been 12 years old, who was <laughs> asking me about uh, humanized food for for dogs. And, of course, I hit the ceiling. What are you talking about, humanized food? Uh, this is what they're doing now. Yeah. Using food science to come out with faux foods. You know, it's completely absurd. Well, what does that even mean, humanized food? Food's food. I, I, I know. You, you and I share the same reaction. Yeah. said to her, food is food. Yeah. But, and then I reminded her of the history where veterinary students were brainwashed by, in their nutrition courses that were given in the old days by veterinarians from the major pet food companies into believing that dog food is for dogs and dogs should not be given human food. Yeah. Or table scraps. You remember that? Oh, yeah. It myth, and then they fill it, finish up in practice selling stuff that, on their shelves for dogs that you and I would never give to our dogs. Yeah. Unless you wanted to make money making them sick. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, that's a, that is alive and well because my when I ask my clients, a lot of times, even still, and in Seattle, which is a pretty progressively sort of forward-thinking pet uh, community... Yes. Um, oh well. Uh, so what do you feed? And what do you feed your dog? Oh well, we we don't ever feed them people food. <laughs> yeah. And like like they because they think that that's what they're supposed to do. I know they're being conditioned. Yeah. But isn't that a whole part of the process? You know, genetic engineers are, are manipulating and controlling the genes, and uh, the media moguls are controlling consumers. Uh, it is a culture of control for. <laughs> for consumption and profit. And it's not very healthy. It's ultimately a dystopia. What is the relationship? Because you spoke to this six years ago when we talked for the first time on the show. And I'm curious, um, just to sort of revisit this, because this is something that I come up against with my clients a lot. And I'm just mindful to educate them that the advice that I give them about pet food is likely going to differ from the advice they get from their vet. So what's happening that, uh, I mean, and it's a really a reflection of human medicine as well, because I've had plenty of clients who are nurses or who were nurses. I just had one yesterday. Yes. And she said that the doctors, the physicians came in and their, you know, nutrition classes were an elective. That's right. <laughs> so, um, but what's you, you know you've you're in the industry so you know you can speak directly and with credibility to your knowledge of the relationship between these companies and what what is being taught to veterinarians. Well, there is a close liaison between uh, through money uh, going from the pharmaceutical and pet food industry. I call it the pharmaceutical food industrial complex. Uh, going to organize human and veterinary medicine. Uh, 
and offering special incentives to students to understand uh, the scientific approach to uh, formulating diets and nutrition and so on. And unfortunately, the kind of science uh, that is being applied is almost from the 19th century, so far as the basic ingredients Mm. of how much fat and protein and blah, blah should be in, so that when you analyze uh, brand X and has a huge amount of protein, the protein could actually be from uh, the beaks and combs and feet of of chickens and have very little real uh, protein of any biological value in it. Uh, so the, the kids are starting to wake up now, and thanks to holistic veterinarians, too, are realizing the wisdom of Hippocrates, who said, uh, let your medicine be your food, and your food be your medicine. Mm-hmm. And the vet schools, and indeed the veterinary journals now, are uh, waking up to this realization. So we're seeing some very good uh, review articles coming out, mm. uh, expanding Uh, the concept of uh, a particular manufactured food providing complete and balanced nutrition for the dog's entire life (laughs) and beyond, to really looking at uh, how processing destroys certain nutrients, how synthetic additives uh, might not be properly absorbed or could cause problems for certain breeds, like you put copper in, and a Bedlington Terrier is going to die from uh, liver disease. Mm. Uh, So they're starting to look now in a more refined, uh, truly scientific approach. But after I posted my note in my column about the scientists discovering glyphosate in cat and dog foods, I received an email from a company representative saying that... uh, Many of my opinions, Dr. Fox's opinions, are not based on sound science. Now, this term, sound science, that's the emperor's new clothes. Mm. That is the emperor's new clothes. Sound science is what the corporations are saying. Oh, you need sound science to prove blah, blah, blah. Uh, So we establish a research fund. Uh, We establish committees to look over the findings. And it's complete nonsense. It's it's another delay tactic. Right. It's inter- It's such an interesting. I mean, we're just we're we're funny creatures, aren't we? We I mean, are. <laughs> uh, we ultimately want to love and to be loved. Yeah. Right. And to feel secure, <laughs> but then we become very quickly worshippers of mammon. You know, the pursuit of money. Yeah. And it is the root of all evil. I'm afraid. Mm. It's very sad, and you know thinking of the money and uh, involved in the dog breeding and these I was watching the, the last Westminster show and took some photographs of some of those pure pure breeds that are really an embarrassment to my species of what they have done mm-hmm. to one of the most wonderful species on the planet yeah you know the canine cousin of the wolf uh, I got these pictures of a German Shepherd running at the Westminster Show, yeah. and he's running on his hocks. Yeah, it, it, you know it's obscene. Mm-hmm. And I would take my class of veterinary students to a place like that and say, "Open your eyes. You must see. We must see what we do that's mm-hmm. wrong. 
without judgment, we must learn how to see right. and also how to feel. And I think we'll be much better as a species that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I want to talk about, since you said feel, um, I wanted to talk about uh, your work um, with behavior and, you know, doing behavioral evaluations and talking about shelter dogs. Yes. And, um, you know, this is a something that, you know, I think is wonderful that a lot of people go to shelters and rescues when they're looking for a family pet. And um, in doing so, a lot of times they get an animal that needs some um, support in in adjusting and settling in and learning where, you know, what the limits are. I mean, a lot of these animals have been bounced around to, in some cases, several different environments, and that's how they've spent their in, the entire first year or two of their lives, which is, you know, birth to adulthood for a dog. Yeah. And um, so I'm just curious to hear, um, you know, what, given the last, you know, 15 or so minutes here, Mm-hmm. On the show, well, let, let me let me say this. I I did work as a volunteer veterinarian years ago at the St. Louis Humane Society. They had a wonderful facility, and then of course, uh, subsequently working with my wife at her refuge in India. Mm-hmm. So I know something about shelter care, the problems of traumatized and injured dogs that come in, mm-hmm. and the whole process. And I. I St. Louis, I wrote a children's book and a scientific paper on the free-roaming dogs there, Wild Dogs 3, uh, won the Best Science Book Award or Scholastic Book. It went with Scholastic Books. Mm. And it's it's even worse in some neighborhoods now where we have all these free-roaming dogs breeding. Uh, in some areas, uh, just an epidemic of pit bulls being used to tear each other apart for some kind of perverse uh, urban sport, tragic, and I take my hat off to those people who are dedicated to helping these poor animals in our shelters. Uh, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can become calloused without knowing it because in order to keep working there, you've got to cut off your own empathy. Mm-hmm. The burden of empathy can be a killer. Yeah, uh, We have to distance ourselves to a degree and turn around and not hate society when you're killing uh, 50 or 100,000 of these animals every year in your shelter. Um, What really helps so many of these dogs, and I have appealed in my column for all these people who are retired now and are thinking about going on the next cruise or whatever, uh, or going playing golf, we shouldn't have golf courses, another pollutant, (laughs) go and volunteer Mm -hmm. at your local shelters. Consider fostering a dog to make it more adoptable. Mm-hmm. If you had dogs in childhood, they certainly made you a better person than you might have been. So you owe something to dogs anyway. And it is amazing how dogs in shelters who do come in suffering from PTSD, mm-hmm. post-traumatic stress syndrome or shock disorder, mm-hmm. uh, do come around. Uh, but in crowded shelters where uh, there's a hundred other dogs barking and not enough staff, uh, they don't come out of their condition. They become more withdrawn, they pick up disease, they're stressed, they become fear biters, 
they fail the behavior tests, and they're killed. And it's, it's a national tragedy, and it's a national outrage. Mm-hmm. But I am encouraged, I must say, by a book that's been put out by recently called Animal Behavior for Shelter Veterinarians and Staff mm. by Wiley Blackwell. Just come out, and I've reviewed it, and I'm very impressed. Good. Uh, giving guidelines for handling and caring for incoming dogs, uh, what to do to make them more adoptable, and it is a major step forward with a good science base. Uh, they're applying the principles of animal behavior or ethology in a very positive way. Mm-hmm. My only critique of this book, not quite relevant to your dog audience, is that they do seem to unconditionally uh, favor uh, trap, neuter, and release of cats. Uh, and I think releasing cats outdoors uh, should be prohibited for any reason. Mm virtually, yeah. with few exceptions. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, I want to talk more about this uh, behavior in shelter animals, but we're going to take a quick break. We're talking with Dr. Michael Fox. If you'd like to find him online, you can visit his website, which is drfoxvet.net, and that's drfoxvet.net. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Dog goes Cat goes meow, bird goes tweet, and mouse goes squeak. Cow goes moo, frog goes croak, and the elephant goes toot. Dogs say quack, and fish go blub, and the seal goes ow, ow, ow. But there's no sound that no one knows. What does the fox say? Pure Air's powerful formula lets you eliminate pet odors safely. It's strong enough to effectively get rid of smells like urine, plus stronger odors like those that can be caused by illness. Pure Air is safe enough to spray directly onto people, animals, or use in the bath or laundry. Pure Air is perfect for dealing with dire situations, refreshing your dog between baths, or just before company comes. Pure Air is the most effective product you can buy to remove stinky pet odors safely. Find it at stores like Mud Bay, McClendon's, and Natural Pet Pantry, or visit their website, pureair.com. That's pure, A-Y-R-E, dot com. I'm Julie Forbes, host of The Dog Show. Pure Air is the only odor eliminator you'll find in my home. You'll love it. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Anti-Icky Poo, the product that gets the stink out, we cover the world of animals. This week, October 11th, it's a harmonic energy shifting Sunday with Jude and Paul Potton from Whispering Dragon. They'll be in the studio with their acutonic forks, Tibetan bowls and bells, pua didge and rattles, ready to do remote sessions for you, your animal friends, your home or business. Open phone lines throughout the show, so call in early. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. This is Julie Forbes, dog training, behavior, and nutrition specialist and owner of Sensitive Dog, thoughtful guidance for you and your dog. If your dog needs basic obedience training, a behavior evaluation, or food consultation, I can help you. Call me at 206-372-7399 or visit my website, www.sensitivedog.com. I teach group obedience classes, in-home lessons, and evaluations, and a two-week intensive training program called Higher Education. Again, I'm Julie Forbes, Seattle's dog behavior training and nutrition specialist, www.sensitivedog.com. 
The Natural Pet Pantry is Seattle's original source for wholesome dog and cat meals, offering eight different protein options to accommodate your pet's dietary needs. Made locally using all U.S. sourced ingredients, their freshly ground stews, raw or cooked, can be purchased from their two stores in Burien and Kirkland, most independent pet supply stores, or delivered right to your door. Go to naturalpetpantry.com for more information. I'm Julie Forbes, and my first choice for my pet's food is the Natural Pet Pantry. It's the educated choice. Lewis and Clark would be proud. We're exploring new territory on the air every day right here on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. That's not what Dr. Fox says, but that's... uh... So, Eric, I've heard of that song, but I have i think that's the most of that song I've actually ever heard. <laughs> well, All I heard was sort of when it was, everyone was like laughing about it or yeah, whatever. it's was a pretty that, funny song. Was that that part that you just played. Speaking of foxes, we're back with Dr. Michael Fox. Which is why I picked that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so... We're talking about, we were talking earlier in the show uh, about nutrigenomics and uh, the impact of nutrition in the environment on health and well-being, uh, specifically how it impacts uh, gene expression, which is pretty important. And um, if you've missed any of any part of this episode or any of our over 300, you can find them all archived on our website, which is dogradioshow.com. And you can also go to iTunes and download all of our episodes for free. And uh, we will also post this on our Facebook page as well. So you can just search for The Dog Show with Julie Forbes on Facebook, and you can listen to our episodes that way too and be a part of the conversation in between our live shows every Wednesday at 2. So we're talking a little bit about, uh, we're switching gears here in the second part of the show and talking a little bit about shelter dogs. And um, as we were talking during the break about uh, one of the um, one of the sort of conversations that I have with my clients for their dogs in general but especially if they've just adopted a dog who's uh, fearful, anxious uh, just really scattered because of lack of consistency of environment for so long um, how I've just witnessed how powerful in in so many different ways, it is for the the humans to engage the dogs in some sort of work together and how powerful that is for both the humans and the dogs, but specifically in building confidence in the dogs, engaging their brain, giving them an outlet for their mental energy and an opportunity to express their instincts and drives. And um, and it can have a, a really powerful overall calming grounding effect and is also really incredible for the human-animal bond, really to work together, because that, if you look back on our history as dogs and humans, sort of the nature of the relationship until relatively very recently has really been working together in some capacity. And a lot of dogs now, I think, are sort of uh, suffering from an unemployment epidemic, and they're bored. An unemployment epidemic, uh, 
people not knowing how to engage with their animals. Yeah. You can call it play, you can call it work, yeah. you can call it what you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, some dogs love to retrieve. Um, my brother-in-law's uh, seeing-eye dog, Quincy, the late Mr. Quincy, mm. uh, would keep retrieving a black Labrador, keep retrieving a ball until he'd worn his pads down to his knuckles. Yeah. He was completely obsessive doing that, and that's genetic. All things in moder- moderation, but find what turns your dog on. Yeah. I received a letter this last week from my column from this lady who went, who has a little Yorkie Terrier, and they would never found a way to play with this little terrier. Mm. But they went to visit some friends, and the friend had a, a squeaky toy for one of their cats. The cat loved it. So they said, well, take it home, try it with your dog. As soon as they got home and this little toy squeaked, the terrier went completely berserk. <laughs> and they play all day and all night now. The terrier is working to kill the prey. That was the terrier's original genetic, humanized, biological purpose in life. Um, we have a neighbor here who has adopted uh, a border collie. And she very rarely walks the dog. She never works the dog. dog like that would love all kinds of puzzles, mm. uh, even if possible going out and herding. Mm-hmm. But uh, she just goes out and the dog chases its tail like a lunatic mm. and barks. And the woman stamps her foot on the deck, telling the dog to be quiet. And that's every day, day after day. Mm-hmm. And I just see two species that are simply not relating. Yeah. Uh, it's very sad. But, you know, back to the animal shelter. Uh, my wife and I have consulted uh, with a wonderful organization with many shelters across Europe, even in Turkey, where they have group housing in the shelters, and we're strong advocates of group housing for both cats and dogs. Trying compatible dogs to be together, you know, four, six, eight, large enclosure, 12 or more. And they get on. The shy ones uh, tend to come out of their shells more when they see the more outgoing and playful ones interacting with each other and with humans. And they so they learn from each other. And that's another thing to address when people do adopt a dog, of finding ways to play, work, engage, of also taking the dog to a daycare place or a doggy group at least once a week to be socialized and maintain bonds with their own species too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do worry that so many dogs are living alone all day, often finishing up in holding crates and being put on various psychotropic drugs uh, to make them less hyperactive and uh, self-destructive. It's, mm-hmm. it's a pretty sad situation. Mm-hmm. I think what you said is a really important thing to highlight is the the relating and um to you know dogs and humans are incredibly relatable to each other. I mean the dogs relate to us and I think that a lot of people don't understand how relatable dogs really are. I mean their emotional lives, their awareness and sensitivity to us. In a, in well, there, there have been some very elegant studies comparing uh, dogs' ability to read our body language, especially pointing at something. Uh-huh. And even chimps and wolves are, are not up to par on reading our body language as well as dogs are. Mm-hmm. And that is an example of evolution or 
selection, if you wish. Uh, dogs have uh, an inherent ability now through selective breeding to really tune into our body language and therefore into our intentions and our emotional states. Yeah. So they can read us often with incredible accuracy. Very good profilers. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, to turn that back around, I love that you just said that in that way, because a lot of times when I'm coaching a human how to communicate with their dog, I'm talking to them about being aware of how their intentions are communicated through their body language, which is sort of their uh, physical manifestation of the, the, the quality of energy that they're generating or how they feel and how, you know, this brings up a really interesting topic of uh, humans sort of disconnect from our own bodies, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, really learning how to communicate with your dog. Well, uh, one of the joys for a lot of people of being with a dog is that they can take off their masks. Yeah. They, they can be themselves. Yeah. But um, the, the next step is to be a dog. And one of my favorite things, and I used to go to schools talking about these things, uh, was to bring my dogs in, and I'd have one of the class come up and get down on his or her knees in front of my dog and then do a play bow. Yeah. And 99% of the time, one of my dogs would respond with a play bow and jump forward and start playing. Yeah. Uh, and I would say, look, you you can imitate certain uh, dog behaviors. These are signals, setting up intentions. Okay, let's play. And also the dog will know, will learn, let's play, where's your ball, where's your leash? They learn these words, but they will also read our body language. Yeah. And I think of all these poor dogs are just waiting for people to communicate with them. Yeah. Get down on the ground with your dog. Yeah. Get down to your dog's level. And one, <laughs> remember one of my funniest exchanges was this retired lady in Florida. Her dog would always yap at her feet, constantly yapping until she picked it up, but then it would stop yapping. Mm -hmm. But as soon as she put it down again, it would yap, yap, yap. Well, you know, the dog there is training the person. <laughs> right. Right. When I yap, you pick me up. So exactly. when I want to be picked up, I will yap. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Cause and effect, right? <laughs> well, oh, yes. <laughs> well, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show Dr. Fox thank you for your time today and for this wonderful conversation uh, we've had several interviews with Dr. Fox over the years the first one was back in November of 2009 you can find it on our website very easily dogradioshow.com it was episode number 37 and you can find Dr. Fox online at www.drfoxvet.net Dr. Fox, thanks again for your time. It was wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. Goodbye. Okay, we'll be back next Wednesday with Disaster Preparedness. With your dog in mind, Tim, Perci Tim Percival is back with us next Wednesday live at 2 p.m. Thanks for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. <laughs> <laughs>